shocked that I'm going to ask for you to turn to Luke chapter 11. Part of the problem of the Christian life that you and I are facing, we read again and again, is they walk by faith and not by sight. That our Christian experience is not guess we're going to wait for this thing to catch up. Who's been playing Minesweeper on my computer up here? I'm just kidding. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's playing Minesweeper. Yeah, I'm going to have to reboot the computer. I think we're asking it too much to run kiosk and then, and then be ready with the message presentation. Well, while, that, while we wait for this thing to cook, let's go to Luke 11 and I'll read with you. You mean from the real Bible and, and just the paper and just me? Can we handle it? In my Bible, in Luke 11, there's a heading that says instruction about prayer, which is an interesting way to do it. I always struggle with the summaries people put on biblical passages. They put a summary thing up there, and, and you're like, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of gets it. That kind of summarizes. But in Luke 11, Jesus is teaching prayer, and it echoes what he says in Matthew, tw- Matthew chapter 5 and 6 uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. This has been called... Uh, Luke's version, uh, the Sermon on the Plain in part. And what you have through the Gospels is echoes of the teachings that Jesus gave. And um, I'm used to reading the, the, the Lord's Prayer, for example, in Matthew chapter 6. But he says it in Luke 11, and there's a different emphasis the way Luke presents it. The emphasis that Luke has, and it's often a Lucan emphasis, is on God the Holy Spirit. And so a couple of things are going to happen as we read this. Jesus in Luke's pen is going to reemphasize the Trinity. We have one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're going to have to put ourselves into the frame of mind that the disciples had before the time in which we live today. There was a major disruption that happened that happened uh, on the day of Pentecost in AD 33. A major disruption took place that to us is the commonplace. It's the norm. It's what we're used to. We're the fish swimming around in it and don't know that it's water. But it is the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us to make each one of us the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, Jesus speaks about this in a way that might be surprising to us. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished. One of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins. We forgive, we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. 
And we could say, well, that sounds like a summary, kind of a synopsis of what we have in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, all the, the things. But it's not exactly the same wording. A couple of thoughts that you have to do with that. If you take God's word as inspired by God, and that is actually God's word, then you have to say that Luke is telling us the truth that Jesus said that. You also have to say that, well, it can't be some sort of special incantation that only has these special things that we have to say 15 times on our little prayer beads or something. It can't be an incantation. And you have to also say that if Luke is quoting Jesus, that Jesus taught this kind of prayer multiple times, which is how I take it. But Jesus says, basically, we're asking for God to have his way. We're asking for the things that God has revealed that he wants for us. Forgiveness of sins, for example. Forgiveness of others. That we not walk in temptation. And then Jesus teaches them, after giving them some of the ways to pray in the quote, Jesus tells them why. The attitude that we come with prayer, the, the perspective that we need to have about it. So much, uh, is, so much about our life is our motivations. Why do we do things the way that we do? How do we do them? What does God want? And it's so much more to be God's person in the circumstance and in prayer, engage with others. It's so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. There's an attitude that God is going for. He made you as so much more than a computer to receive a program and just give the inputs of the program. He made you as a volitional personal being. And so your motivation matters and your perspective matters. Remember, we ask God for something we think he wants, and then we don't get it in the time that we in our arrogance have specified would be a sufficient amount of time to, for him to provide it. Lord, by next Thursday, I would uh, like you to go ahead and remove this burden that's on my shoulders. I'll go ahead and have it uh, next Thursday. And I really name it and I really claim it. Amen. That's not a biblical prayer. And if you're suffering from um, a, a sense that God doesn't answer your prayers or he's not listening, well, let's let God's word tell us how to do it. Let's think of it his way because there's a totally different perspective that the Lord provides. See, there was a time before the Spirit came when there was no way they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. There was a time after the Holy Spirit came where everybody who trusted in Christ received the Holy Spirit. And in that time before the Spirit came, they were told to pray like this. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So I'm going to uh, notice the, the cultural sense that I'm going to inconvenience my close neighbor, my, the person that I'm intimate with regularly in order to be hospitable to someone that's come in that's, that I'm trying to, to be hospitable, uh, that's from outside, from out of town, a friend that's come from a journey. And so I'm, I'm waking you up to help me be hospitable. That's the worldview. That's the, that's the culture. What a beautiful thought that you would have someone that you could come to. you have anybody in your life you can call at midnight? Hey, I got something. I got a project I got to work on. Really have to do this. And your friend would understand why you had called them. Okay, midnight, let's... They don't have lights and, and air and stuff. They don't, you know, th this is like for us, it's like 2, 3 in the morning, right? I mean, we, the, you know, nobody's, nobody's supposed to call us. This is definitely waking me up. Like if, if you live by the sun, S-U-N, and, and it's midnight, you've been asleep for a while, culturally, understand. 
I'm sure there have always been people burn, burning the midnight oil, literally in their culture. But, but the point is that you're inconveniencing them big time. Why would I call someone so late? Well, because it's important. What's important? Well, I got to take care of this other person. What an amazing thing to have people. You have people in this church you could call? You have at least one, right? If, if I can hear it, if the phone wakes me up, at midnight, you know, you don't have to worry about being awake. awake but but you know, that, it's an amazing thought that, that just you would go to your neighbor and say, hey, help me out. Now, but then the rest of the story is that they're going to react the way we would tend to react. From inside, the friend answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. It's a legitimate response. You can try it, and I have the reserve the right to say no. Now, that's an interesting thing. You ever have to tell someone no? Of course you do. You have to say no all the time. And if you're like me, you don't like to do it. I don't like to say no. I like to say yes and mean it. And when you make me tell you no, usually I get angry. I don't get real angry, or you can see it, but I get angry. And I don't want to get angry, but that's just my nature. I don't want to say no, and I feel like there's a problem if I have to. Maybe that's just a hang-up I have, but I know there are others of you, perhaps, that are this way, that if you have to resist somebody that asks you for something, there seems to be a fissure. There's a fracture in the relationship. Like, the guy in bed says, can you believe he woke me up? And from then on, there's this little mark on the relationship. And the guy that's asking for help is like, can you believe he couldn't help me? He didn't care enough to help us. And the truth is that we need to get over ourselves and we need to be more forgiving uh, than, than not. And we need to love covers a multitude of sins and just let people be part of our lives. If you want to be that way where she called me late at night and that's not, if you want to be that way, don't worry, give it enough time. No one's ever going to call you. If you... <laughs> If you want to be the guy that can never be bothered, don't worry, you won't be bothered. One of the great Proverbs is that uh, where there is no ox, the crib is clean, but much increase comes through the strength of the ox. In other words, if you want to get anything done, you have to put up with all the maintenance and trouble that goes along with uh, the, the project, and that's people. People are messy, and they take energy, and I just love the, the culture where you would just go knock on the, the, the door next door and be like, hey, we got to put on a party because my, my, my friend is coming, and you're my friend, so you got to help me. It's awesome. Who is, the, who is this knocking on my door? So now I've got my Bible on the screen. Jesus says, I tell you, though, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, so there are friends, Yet because of his persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. So we were talking about the nature of this friendship, right? You're stuck with these people. You live next door to them. You're in the, you know, you're walking distance. We're already like, oh, he woke me up. <sighs> Hopefully your relationships are, you're a big enough person that you can absorb that and be like, that's part of the relationship and we're still, we're still connected. And then he knocked again. I told him, I don't want to get up. Knock, knock, knock. I told him the kids. Knock, knock, knock. And this is the concept of persistence. Jesus says, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, my love for you extends to about 1150, but midnight, sorry, got nothing. Even though he's his friend, that won't pull it, but he'll be motivated because of his persistence. That's the relationship Jesus is describing. 
So we're leveraging more than just the politeness. See, we're polite. We, you know, if you don't want to, don't feel obligated. This person's pest, a, a, a pest kind of person that will just keep knocking. They'll assume your forgiveness in advance. I know you don't want me to bother you, but you'll forgive me. We'll talk about this tomorrow. These people are very endearing and delightful unless you really need a good night's sleep. And he'll give him as much as he needs because of his persistence. So I say to you, now that's the, that's the sort of the parable. It's not a parable, but it's a story. It's a picture of the way people are, of the way, the way relationships work. And so I couldn't be moved because of our relationship, but I am moved because I'd like to get back to sleep. And so I'll go answer the door and give him whatever he wants because he's not going to go away. Jesus is telling you the squeaky wheel gets the oil and that you, the disciples he's talking to should be persistent in their prayers. How long should we persist in our prayers? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the shortest verse in Greek, the, the shortest number of letters of a verse in Greek is pray unceasingly. Pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And we've all read this in Matthew 5. I'm sure you've read through your Bible. we read it in Luke chapter uh, 11 here. But notice, ask, seek, and knock. And so he uses these words not as technical terms to describe different aspects of prayer, but just as a picture for you to hang on to, this threefold description of persistence. I'm asking, and I'm not stopping asking. I'm going to stay engaged, and I'm going to bother you. That's the picture that is consistently portrayed wherever Jesus taught this in the Gospels. I can't wait to have a lesson on this in heaven. Jesus is going to uh, talk about this, I think, with us. I mean, what are we doing? For seven years of tribulation, there's the judgment seat of Christ. It doesn't really say how that timing works up. What are we doing uh, in, the, um, in the kingdom? How much of, we know one of the great descriptions of the coming kingdom is that Yahweh is going to teach the nations his word. I expect a great deal of training to go on and on and on and on forever. And I expect our Savior to... Um, elaborate on this. There are a lot of things that he said in his uh, describing the Gospels that I think are going to take on a whole, not a different meaning, but a a deeper sense when we meet him and talk to him in person, face-to-face. When we're absent from the body, present with the Lord, and the resurrection, when so shall we ever be with the Lord, we're going to be able to hear him. But here Jesus, this is the closest you get to him, where his disciples, and those, uh, in this case Luke, uh, writing, the eyewitnesses from those, those disciples and apostles, when, when, when they tell you what he said, and this is one of his key things, is persistence. This flies directly in the face of the arrogance that says, I haven't received it yet, so I guess God isn't interested in answering my prayer. Jesus said, you have to be persistent in your prayer to the disciples. And in this context, it's very exciting, the topic that he goes to. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Wow, there's a promise of answered prayer. Now, we're not supposed to take this into a a carnal frame and say, whatever it is that I want for me, I will receive. James tells you you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask for selfish purposes to spend on your pleasures. This is not what we're talking about, that we're rubbing the genie. And if you're really uh, godly, then you'll really be wealthy. It has nothing to do with the context. Context is, if you want the things of God that he wants to give you, he wants you to ask him. And he wants you to keep asking. He wants you to bother him. And what's the greatest and highest and most wonderful thing you could imagine? The presence of God in your very person. The most wonderful thing 
would be that the power working within the humanity of our Savior in his earthly ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit described, for example, in Isaiah 11, the sevenfold spirit that would be the spirit of wisdom and discernment and, and rulership and all the things that empowered our Savior would be in us, for he is the pioneer of our faith, the one that pioneered our spiritual life. When Jesus was accused of casting out demons in the power of Satan, for example, Matthew 12, Jesus described that act, that accusation, that slanderous word as not a word against himself or against his father, but as a word of slander against the Holy Spirit that where Jesus was casting out demons in one power, the Pharisees were saying it was in the power of Satan. Jesus said, you're actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The power in whom I'm doing these works is God, the third person. This is what empowered him. This is what, the, the, and you can say, well, but Jesus is God in the flesh. That's right. And at times it's very clear he's expressing that deity, but it's very rare. And the spirit of Christ is the spirit who empowered the spirit, the Holy Spirit who empowered our savior. And so it's so important. Like to us, it's just, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. You know, we have the word, we have a spiritual life. And I talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But imagine before when you didn't have the Holy Spirit in you, when you had Jesus with you. And he says, for example, in the Upper Room Discourse in John, it's better for you that I go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Well, here, this is what you should be asking for and should be asking for it with, uh, with persistence. Because he says in verse 11, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He won't give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, you're not give him a scorpion. Will he? You can say, ah, ah, ah. Nope. It's, it's an egg or a stone in Matthew chapter um, 5. I think it's 5 or 7. It's one of those. Well, see, he gave this message multiple times, and, and it wasn't, he wasn't reading a script, right? And so there was a time when he compared a stone to a scorpion. Dad, or sorry, uh, if he asked for an egg. Dad, could I have an egg? I, this just happened to me yesterday. Dad, could I have an egg? You know what I said? Well, we gotta we gotta be careful with our finances, our savings about these eggs. No, we we fried, we fried an egg. If he asks for an egg, he will. If he's asked for an egg, he won't give him a scorpion. And so, what's the what's the imagery there? Jesus is so good with imagery. He's such a great. Te- he's the ultimate teacher. The image is taking relationship and functions within relationship. It's fathers and sons, dads and little kids. This isn't a grown son, hey, dad, can I have a loaf of bread? That's, no, no, this is a father and a little kid in his household. And you can imagine, what does God think about his little kids? And so he's portraying the relationship we have with God as we're asking him with a little kid asking his dad, I want something to eat. In our home with all these boys, this is a very common sentiment. It's almost like, um, I feel like, like Casey Jones just shoveling the coal into the fire and just keep on. You know, I once heard a comedian, uh, Jeff Allen, talked about um, their, their army son came home on leave and they just had to start making vats and vats of mac and cheese because he was eating them faster than they could, they could buy food. He was eating all the food. And they said, we're in competition. We're in competition against you, a whole family against you, you one young guy. And um, he said, your little brother is the best joke. He said, your little brother is, uh, is, is losing weight so bad. He's so skinny. The other day, he, uh, he was on his bicycle. And he fell into the, the, the sewer grate. <laughs> but, he, but he had his helmet on, so it caught him. 
Now, we have our dads, and our dads love us, and they provide for us. And, you know, dads, we love to provide for our kids. We love the, the joy it gives us to, to do for them, to help them, to, to satisfy legitimate needs they have. It's what we're made for. It's, we're the provider. It's awesome. And um, Jesus takes that sense that we have as fathers and as parents and providers, and then he compares it, he scales it to God. And how does he scale it? He calls us evil. <laughs> he's, he's very critical of us, as he should be. In verse 13, if you then being evil, how do you know how to, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He went from a, specific, a general thing of giving and what you want to the specific of the greatest and highest and the best. The general is, God, give me good things. I want something to eat, the little boy tells his dad. And then he goes, he narrows down to the specific, which is the pinnacle of something you'd ask for. Let your spirit reside in me. Give me the personal power that your son had as he walked on earth. That's what we're talking about in this passage. There it is in Greek, and I'll show you my translation. He says, therefore, and this is what I want to focus on, if you, if Sets up a conditional, if you who are evil, being evil, just a preposition for, I'm sorry, a participle for existence, you existing as evil. Poneros is the typical adjective we describe, we, we translate as evil. There's no way around it. Jesus is calling his disciples evil. Evil. Bad. Unclean. Undesirable. Unsatisfactory. <sighs> Not very, not very positive message, is it? Well, we didn't come here for self-esteem. We came here to worship God. And the more we do that, the more, like Isaiah and Isaiah 6, we'll become aware of the differential. God is holy and righteous, and we are not, except that he's acted on us. And so the disciples who don't deserve to be the residents of God, the Holy Spirit, are going to receive that grace. And that grace is accentuated by the fact that Jesus calls them evil. Your little kids, you don't think of them as evil usually. Usually when they say, oh, can I have something to eat? They're being pretty good, right? But this is talking about the whole package. You don't deserve what your father wants to give you. That's what he's saying. You being evil. And then he turns the illustration. I can compare dads to God the Father, but I have to make the expanse morally an infinite expanse between the two. The father's infinitely righteous and we're evil. You being evil know how or know to give good gifts to your children. If you know about this fatherly desire to provide for your kids, that you know that you're not going to give them a scorpion if you ask for an egg. Now, your kids might ask for scorpions, and that's cool, but they're not asking for it to eat. Usually when one of my kids says... Um, says, hey, I'm scared there, there's a spider or a bug or something. You know, I'm trying to toughen these guys up a little bit. What do I say? Don't eat the spider. When they say, oh, there's a spider, I say, don't eat that. What do you want? I mean, you need instruction? <laughs> don't eat that. <laughs> it's kind of obvious. Some of you got it. Anyway, um, if you are being evil, know how to give or know to, know that the whole process, the whole point the, the th that you should actually is what the infinitive is saying, give good gifts to your children. We get an a fortiori. The then is implied, and it's a fortiori for stronger reason. How much more? For what greater reason would your father, who's perfectly righteous, know how to give good gifts to you? But he doesn't say good gifts. 
He didn't say, if, you ask, if, you, if your kid is asking for food, how much more give us this daily bread, he says in verse, um, verse 3, in the context. If, if your kid knows to ask, and you as a dad know how to give, how much more does your father know to give you the Holy Spirit? It's kind of a shock that he switches to the fact of the giving of the Spirit, to the emphasis of that point. But that's what Jesus is saying. There are several principles we can deduce from this. We have to deduce. You, you, there, there are implications you can't get around. For example, there is a calendar day that Jesus said this to his disciples, and it is some period of time, weeks, months, or years before 33 AD Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and they received the promise of the Father, as Luke says in Luke 24 and Acts 1. There was a period of time that God knew and they didn't know. God knew the time and they didn't know the time. And at that point when Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock and be persistent because your father's better at giving than you are and he knows how to give you the Holy Spirit, how, how should we respond to the fact that God knows there's this set time between the command to ask and the receiving? How do we respond in our prayer life? We let God be in charge of the calendar. We let him have his perfect timing for the fulfillment of our requests. And we make them with persistence. That's the general application. Now, some want to do a specific application and say, see, the reason you people don't have a whole lot of spiritual experience or spiritual life is you haven't asked for the Holy Spirit. They try to take what the disciples were experiencing before the day of Pentecost, and they try to superimpose that on the Christian life today in a direct way, and that's impossible. The apostle, I call your attention to 1 Corinthians 6. I can make theological statements, but it's better to just point you to the Bible where the theological statements come from. In 1 Corinthians 6, the wicked, sinful, carnal, rebellious, disobedient, fornicating, adultering, uh, suing each other Corinthians are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. They have received the Holy Spirit, and it's not because they're super good and moral people. It's because this is the order of making the church, being part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, being part of the body of Christ is partaking of the same Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we first trusted in Jesus Christ. And this is a major emphasis of our back to the Bible movement. We're here at the conclusion of more than a century of a movement that said we must get back to the scriptures. I've been reading the Truth magazine from 1875, published till 1897. I have this in, I've talked about this before. I have this in uh, electronic format. This is the origin, this reasoning that they were providing back then with the Bible conference movement, especially in Niagara, Ontario. Um, in, uh, in Canada, they'd go up and have these conferences, these Bible teachers from around the country, especially the United States. They'd go have these retreats, and the hotel where they went is now no longer present. The, the, the Niagara Falls still is there. But the hotel where they had the conferences has been long since demolished. But these early, we're talking 1880s, 90s, early 20th century, that were not, they did not have the word fundamentalism yet. The, the liberals called them this. The liberals that rejected the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of every word called these people fundamentalists because they published a series of tracts called the Fundamentals. These are the basic things we all believe, whether we're Anglicans or Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists. We believe in the virgin birth of Christ. We believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We believe in these fundamentals. That's what the, the Henry, I think Henry Fostick called us this. The liberals called us fundamentalists because we believed in these fundamental doctrines like the virgin birth. 
Okay, so that's where the word comes from. It has nothing to do with 9-11 or Islam or any of that, but that's what it's been taken as by, by political liberals like Christopher Hitchens. Uh, no, he's a, he was a conservative, but he was an atheist. But popular people against Christianity will say this, and especially political liberals call Bible-believing Christians fundamentalists like Islamic fundamentalists. The word fundamental comes from the early 20th century and these Bible-believing people in the Back to the Bible conference movement that spawned... Uh, religious or Christian conservatism, I should say, in the, in the United States uh, for the 20th century. And we're here as the heirs of this. We're the heirs of the Bible conference movement. We still believe that there's a distinction between God's eternal purpose for Israel and God's design in time and eternity of the church. We still believe this because it's what the scriptures require. And we cannot do the gymnastics that have been done since, since the 300s to say, that the Israel of the Old Testament transmorphed into the church of the New Testament so that there is no future for national Israel. We can't do it. We can't join the anti-Semitism of the, of the church history that rejected Israel because they said that they, was, they were the Christ killers or something. We can't do that because we've got a God who made his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to keep them. And we hold these truths because they're in the scripture, but we see them because we're heirs to this movement called the Bible Conference Movement, which was back to the Bible. That's your history. This is your heritage. This is where we're from. And most of you probably never heard of the Niagara Bible Conferences. Nobody's ever heard of James Brooks, but he's very important in terms of helping people understand the scriptures in his day. He died in, again in 1897. Why am I talking about this? Because in this movement that was back to the Bible, there was a very popular thread of prophecy, Bible prophecy, the part of Scripture that Augustine glossed over, that the Augustinians in the Reformation, Calvin and Luther, basically rejected and didn't look at their details because they're Augustinian in their, in their prior training, that they, the church missed the Bible prophecy. And one reason we did it is because it's hard. It's hard to read Isaiah. Y'all are learning that on Wednesdays. It's Isaiah's challenge is poetic. Daniel's gets very specific, but it's hard to tell sometimes whether he's talking about the Antichrist or Antiochus IV. It's hard. Bible prophecy is challenging. And on the other side, after it gets fulfilled, like Jesus is born in Bethlehem, we can say, whoa, Micah 5, 2, it's like right on. He's born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, exactly as Isaiah said. When we see these things that are in, in hindsight and fulfillment, we can say, oh, okay, now I see it. But we have a lot of things that aren't fulfilled, so we're kinda, we have to be in suspense. We kind of have to say, this is exactly what it says. It's what I expect, but I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work. I'll give you an example. The ten-nation confederation that will uh, operate under Antichrist in the, in the failed attempt at one world government in the tribulation, this kingdom of Antichrist, the ten-nation confederacy. Is that the ten nations of the EU? Is that what the EU is about? That's a popular thing. People are like, oh, the EU got together and they consolidate all these different nations into one 10-nation block, 10 block. That's got to preface the, the kingdom of Antichrist. That doesn't work. Antichrist's effort is a, is a world government over all the nations. No, no. The 10-nation confederation of EU is not the 10 nations of prophecy. It can't be because you've got a, a whole world. The North American corridor, the, the, that is what they're trying to put together with Mexico and the United States and, and, uh, and Canada, that would be one of the 10 in the coming effort of Antichrist. And EU would be one of the 10. 
And there are going to be 10 of these confederations that will cover the entire globe. And, the, and, and, and see, that's the kind of stuff you get into when you start trying to figure out prophecy and how it re- reflects on the world we live in. It's very speculative. And we don't want to be dogmatic about anything except what God has said and implications we have to draw from it. Like, don't speculate about your neighbor and their suffering. The entire book of Job was written for that. Don't speculate about why someone's suffering because you don't know. God knows, and God will deal, and God's righteous and loving, and you can worship him every step of the way, but don't speculate. The whole book, Job, the oldest book of the Bible, is written so that we won't speculate about each other. That's wisdom. But we don't speculate about this prophecy. But, but, so back, backing about, we had this emphasis on reclaiming a biblical approach to prophecy like we had about soteriology, salvation, like we had on so many other things. And so it was very popular to talk about prophecy in this movement, and it still is. And people that look at Bible prophecy and study it as unfulfilled things and future national Israel and the book of Revelation is a chronological depiction of actual events that will take place called the Tribulation, chapter 6 through 19. These are real historical events presented chronologically, not a cyclical um, poetic summary of God winning over Satan, but actually a chronological depiction of a coming one world government. Like we have emphasized these things in the Bible conference movement and everyone got excited about it. It's when the pre-tribulation view of the rapture was uh, popularized and why it got so much uh, traction here for a while. Now that view has been discredited uh, supposedly in popular Christian discourse by various luminaries of theology. And, but every one of them that will denounce the pre-tribulation rapture, I'll show you something else in their theology that's worse than that rejection of a biblical doctrine of the assembling of Christ's church to meet him in the clouds before he brings his wrath on the earth dwellers, as he says in Revelation 3.10. The rejection of that doctrine isn't nearly as egregious as the rejection of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ and not by any works of righteousness which we've done, but by his grace, by his mercy, he saved us. I'd say the typical Reformed repudiation of salvation by grace through faith is much worse than their denial of the pre-trib rapture or the future of Israel or the other things because their doctrine of salvation, if someone hears it and trusts it, they haven't trusted in Christ. They've trusted in their works. And that sounds pretty, pretty uh, antagonistic, I know. But hey, it's the gospel. We're talking about people's eternal destiny. And if they're trusting in themselves in any way, they haven't understood that Christ alone paid for their sins. And if you haven't understood this, if you think you're being a good person and that has any, any, cuts any ice with God, you're, you're confused. There's nothing we do to please God except recognizing the work that God has done with which he's pleased. We trust in Christ as our Savior. That is the beginning of eternal life. And if you haven't trusted that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, and you come to the cross with empty hands of need and just receive what Christ has done, you haven't understood the gospel yet. And I'll say that, and everyone will say amen, and then I'll ask you individually, what must I do to be saved? And someone inevitably will say, well, I have to be a good person. And we haven't yet understood on that basis, no one is ever saved. No one is a good person. Jesus said, no one is good, but God. All right. So the church that we're in, the movement that we've, we've come through, where we're back to the Bible, we're emphasizing Bible prophecy is often caricatured as a bunch of wide-eyed sensationalists that are just looking at future things in Bible prophecy, and they're not looking at uh, the Bible. The problem is that it's a back to the Bible movement that says, no, we read Paul and Daniel the same way as the author intended, taking his words seriously. Now, 
Did you know, this is the part that you might not know if you're following the, you know, where we've come from, that we've emphasized Bible prophecy and the doctrine of the church. Did you know that by getting back to the Bible, there was another major emphasis in the Bible conference movement, which was so vital to our lives. Did you know that the early conferences that, that, that Darby had a generation before Brooks and then Brooks started in Niagara over here in the mainland in the United States? Did you know that these conferences, if not as much, almost as much as Bible prophecy and how to read Daniel and Revelation, they were emphasizing the works of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. It was a sanctification movement that looked at the Holy Spirit and took the Holy Spirit very seriously. They rejected Montanism in the second century and Neo-Montanism of the early 20th century, which is this idea that a true encounter with the Holy Spirit is not cognitive, it is not based on the scriptures, it is only emotive, and it is taking a person out of self-control. We have scripture from the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul that tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, uh, 22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. These gyrating people that blame their barking like animals and jumping up and down and blame it on the Holy Spirit are no different than animistic religions of all cultures and all continents that have had the same type of animistic, uh, emotional, um, hyper-ecstatic experiences. Glossolalia, the technical term for speaking in tongues in terms of a, of a gibberish approach to tongues, is not specifically Christian. It's in all pagan cultures, Entering into a trance-like state to have an out-of-control uh, experience is not something we see the Lord Jesus doing, and it's not something we see his apostles doing. But what we do see them is speaking in tongues. We do see them speaking foreign languages of the diaspora, Jews speaking other Gentile languages to Jews on the day of Pentecost, announcing that the Holy Spirit has come. And what they're saying in those foreign languages are words and sentences that have meanings in those foreign languages. And that's the miracle, that's the work in the early church of the gift of tongues. What I'm saying is that if you talk about the Holy Spirit as an emphasis in this Christendom that we live in today, people tend to immediately assume ecstatic, emotional, mystical. And this is the air, the, the inheritance that we have from the Bible conference movement. We were not ever, well, there was some mysticism, but we were not generally mystical. We certainly weren't ecstatic and we were not driven by emotions. I believe the third article in the first edition of the Truth Magazine, which kind of kicked this thing off in 1875, is an article called Feelings. And it's a corrective. It's an article written by Brooks, James Brooks, pastor of, uh, of, uh, of I, forget, I forget which church in St. Louis, big Presbyterian church, big famous pastor in his day. It's an article about how in our time, everyone wants to talk about feelings, 1875. But the scriptures don't use that language. And if we go back to the Bible, we find we need to get to the word and what God has told us in faith and trusting him. In other words, we're not just out there believing in some amorphous sense we're trusting in God, the personal being we have to deal with, and his word that he's given us, which we've understood. Like when Jesus tells the disciples, here's something to believe in. Jesus said, today you need to learn to be persistent in prayer. And he doesn't tell them when they'll receive the promise of the Father that they receive the Holy Spirit. But we know on, on the calendar, AD 33, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. They don't know when they get the answer, but they know you're told to pray persistently. Father, give us 
Give us the good things you want us to have. And there's a termination point of that request because they receive it. Now, what do you do on the other side of that? The day of Pentecost, they got what they asked for if they obeyed Jesus. They got the Holy Spirit. What do you do on the other side of that where we live today? I'm over here. I'm over here on the other side of the day of Pentecost. What do we do having received what the disciples fervently asked for? Well, if you receive the request that you've made, you're supposed to then switch the prayer a little bit to... Yes, we thank him for what he's given us, for answering that prayer. We thank him for healing us. We thank him for all the things he does. Have you thought of thanking him for the riches of divine grace that you have the Holy Spirit? That what they were supposed to intensely, fervently pray for is yours now. You have the third person of the Trinity living in you to make your very body. It's not just your spirit. We're divided into parts. We can't experience separation from the parts, but they do eventually separate. You can't even say it's just in my spirit. The Holy Spirit has made your body the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. And that means that there's certain expectations of conduct. The problem is that we can't see. So we struggle with faith when we walk by faith and not by sight. First Peter 1, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Oh, but they had the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, the people writing Scripture, the dozen people, a couple dozen people in the Old Testament writing Scripture, they had the Holy Spirit, inspiring them to write the words that they wrote but they didn't have what you have. How do I know? It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I've heard in the last few years a lot about privilege. It's now a bad word. It means racism. Privilege means racism today, and it's a bad word. It's not a bad word, and it doesn't mean racism. It means that you have an advantage. It means you have something special. It means that there's something about you that others don't have. Something about you that you might not have had, except that God graced you out. You were born in the United States, for example, if you were. Not everyone here was. But those of you who were born in the United States, you can say, what a privilege, what an economic, social, military, you name it, advantage compared to the, the life after the flesh of the wide world. Nothing like it except a little bit in some ways in European countries. Nothing like it. I don't care where you go. Boy, it's, it's magnificent that you live here. What a privilege. Well, that's nothing. It's really nothing compared to the fact that you and I have the Holy Spirit. Compared to the fact that we have the various ministries of the Holy Spirit, which as we close, we'll remind you we've outlined. We've outlined and we continue to outline. From the moment you first believe in Christ, believer, take this to the bank. You have it. You need to appreciate it. In fact, go to the bank of God's riches and open up your safe deposit box and look in the things that God has given you because you are capitalized. You don't need to name it and claim it. You have it. You have the wealth that God wants to give you. And it's not just so you can say, oh, look, I have the Holy Spirit. It's so that you can be about his work. 
From the moment we first believe in Christ, forevermore, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. We are gifted with a spiritual gift for the function of the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. These are the works that are irrevocable and that are yours the very moment you first trust in Christ. See, there was a time... All the history before when they didn't have this. You could look it up in John chapter 7, I believe 39, 38. The Holy Spirit wasn't yet given because Christ wasn't yet glorified. And yes, a few in the Old Testament had an endowment, a power of the Spirit from God. But it was a very, very small percentage of people. Samson, the judges, David, Saul. You can name them. Uh, Moses, the 70 elders that prophesied once, but they didn't prophesy again. What we're saying is we're wealthy beyond our imagination. But we don't feel wealthy beyond our imagination. The question is, what rules your life? God's word or how you feel? And this is what I'm seeking to do with this study. Would God please give us that sense that Paul mentions as we close in Ephesians chapter 1? Would God give us that perspective that Paul prays for? But the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but in your spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. May we be people who in our life circumstances, in the throes of your relationships, in all the things going on with work, and in all the questions and all the hardships, may we be people that can see these invisible things because of the eyes of faith as God opens our heart to them. Finally, beloved, I would apply the ask, seek, and knock, and the persistence in prayer. You don't have to pray to receive the Holy Spirit, but you can be constantly asking God that you would walk in a manner pleasing to him in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is very imperative that we ask God, express yourself through me and let me not get in the way of that work. Our Father in heaven, we bow with gratitude for our so great salvation, with broken hearts for our family and friends who don't have Christ. And a constant request on their behalf that you would open their hearts and bring a preacher, bring someone to share the word with them that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. Father, we open the message this morning with a prayer uh, for their salvation. We close with a prayer for their salvation, with their understanding, with their, um, that the eyes of their hearts would be opened. And just as the Apostle Paul prayed for the believing Ephesians, Father, give us that sense, that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we know what you've done for us, who we are, and what you expect. Don't let us squander the wonderful riches of your grace, namely that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has come to take up residence in us so that we walk in dependence on the power he supplies, loving, rejoicing all the things that are the fruit of the Spirit. Father, let these things be real to us. Break our hearts and calibrate our consciences to them, Father, so that we're not walking away, as James said, from the word and forgetting what it says about us. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen.